Think back to moments, big or small, where you felt unsafe, unseen, or judged because of your race or the ideas learned based on the realities of what you see and experience as a person of color. Did you brush it off? And did it stay with you, shaping your thoughts, emotions, and even physical well-being? The experiences of race-based trauma is real for communities of color. And how might we have conversations about it with our clients? Furthermore, what does race-based trauma look like at the diagnostic level of Criterion A for post-traumatic stress disorder? As mental health professionals of color, even though we are faced with the challenges of being exposed to race-based stressors, there are ways in which we continue to thrive, connecting with professional communities, other support systems, and by celebrating cultural strengths. Welcome to People of Color in Psychology, the show that explores mental health topics specific to culture, diversity, and communities of color. I am your host, Jack Sen. As part of our series for Black History Month, our guest today is Dr. Brittany Hall Clark, a licensed psychologist in Texas. Dr. Hall Clark holds several professional roles, including being a consultant for the National Center for PTSD, consultation team for the Department of Veteran Affairs at White River Junction, Vermont, is an associate professor within the Division of Behavioral Medicine and the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio, and part of a group practice at Insight Psychology and Behavioral Health Services. In her professional work, Dr. Hall Clark explores the impact of cultural factors on mental health and cultural sensitive treatment approaches. She examines how factors like spirituality, prejudice, discrimination, and racial themes influence mental health experiences across diverse populations. Her passion lies in bridging the gap between research and practice, focusing on the impact of cultural variables on mental health, understanding how PTSD symptoms present differently across racial and ethnic groups, and equipping healthcare providers with the skills to deliver culturally responsive care. In addition to her clinical research, Dr. Hall Clark has been recognized as a Master Prolonged Exposure Therapy Clinician. And as a Black psychologist, Dr. Hall Clark will be discussing ways to overcome challenges and to connect with the community. Dr. Hall Clark, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. First of all, can you walk us through your personal journey and share with us any memorable events and circumstances that influenced how you got into this work? Sure. So I first decided I wanted to be a psychologist when I was in high school. Our school did this experience called interim term where we got to try out different career paths. And I had the opportunity to try some that were related to psychology and mental health working at a children's assessment center in the Houston, Texas area, which is where I'm from. And so I really learned a lot and found it valuable. And then when I decided to apply to graduate school, I ended up choosing a lab that focuses on multicultural processes and mental health, which has continued to be a passion for me. Can you tell me more about the project from high school? Sure, so um, it was a three week period of time where we got to do an internship 
and I spent time with children in the playroom as a volunteer. And I learned as I got more connected to the center that they were all survivors of sexual trauma. And so they are for healing. And so I got to shadow different clinicians and learn more about their experiences, be an observer in group therapy, and also just play with the kids. Oh, wow. Wow. So you had a chance to really see the impact of how mm -hmm. therapy can change these young children's experiences and also to help them heal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And mm -hmm. you've actually had some publications on, you know, looking at PTSD, exploring criterion A. How did you find yourself uh, incorporating more of the cultural lens mm -hmm. in your clinical research work? Sure, sure. When I got to undergraduate school, I learned as much as I could about different types of psychology and ended up with clinical psychology as my background. And I found quickly that there was a lot of emphasis on symptoms and disorders and presentations. So while I very much valued my training and my career, I often would look at other aspects of psychology, particularly counseling psychology, multicultural psychology as well, to have a more holistic perspective. So yes, we still treat people for the disorders that they present with, but also seeing things from a more holistic perspective and attending to factors related to identity and culture. I mean, yeah, we, we do a lot of diagnostics based on symptoms. Mm -hmm. And in many ways, it seemed very insufficient. So you were looking at how do we understand these symptoms in a context of a person's identity? And is that where the cultural lens came in? Yes, yes. So I began educating myself, taking classes in the counseling psychology department, starting to network with other psychologists of color and learning more about how I could think about doing cognitive behavioral therapy in a culturally responsive way. And so near the end of my training, I decided to put together a lecture where we talked about how do we incorporate culture at every element of treatment, from assessment, diagnosis, factors that we're considering from intake throughout the assessment process, treatment process, and specific ways we can incorporate these into cognitive behavioral interventions. And that's actually the foundation of the talks that I still give today. Oh, wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. And the the foundations of this talk incorporating culture throughout the whole process from mm -hmm. uh, diagnostics to intakes to even in the therapy interactions, mm -hmm. you know, for our therapists, faculty members mm -hmm. and listeners, is there something that you think would be important for us to consider and explore since, you know, we are producing this episode for Black History Month? Mm -hmm. Is there something you think all of us should really know and understand mm -hmm. when working with Black or African-American clients? Mm, sure. I think when working with all clients, it's helpful to make room and the assessment process to give people space to talk about their background, their identity, their culture, particularly for African-Americans or Black people, especially attending to the topic of racism and asking whether they've had experiences of discrimination or racism that have been affecting their lives. Sometimes this is a core reason why they presented tr treatment in the first place. Sometimes they might be surprised but happy that you asked because most providers don't ask that question. Or they might feel more guarded, like, why are you asking me that? That's not why I'm here for. But many times when I ask that question, it 
conveys a message that I'm willing to have these conversations. And even if they don't endorse gratitude or express appreciation right away, there are some times that several sessions later, people will come back to these ideas and say, you know, I hadn't realized how much of a role discrimination plays or racial stress and trauma might play in my life. Hmm. So, you know, being able to broach the conversation about racism because mm -hmm. it's real and, and it occurs yes. uh, mm -hmm. and creating a space to explore that. Now, when clients, I guess I'm thinking about, you know, you've also done some work on racial trauma and you've co-authored papers on the Criterion A stressor. Can you maybe share with us a little bit more about how we incorporate that concept of racial trauma in Criterion A? Sure, sure. And I'll talk a little bit more about how we got to that as well. So I was recruited by the National Center for PTSD because of my experience with evidence-based trauma-focused therapies like prolonged exposure therapy, cognitive processing therapy, as well as my interest in diversity and PTSD. And so they were looking to add to the team to have a perspective of people that could answer those types of questions. I also joined the team around 2020, which was the time where our country was going through a racial reckoning after the very tragic death of George Floyd, the national outbreak when it came to protests for Black Lives Matter, counter protests to Black Lives Matter, and just a, a period of time that was, um, you know, has been tumultuous. And then over the years, we've had other socio-cultural events that our country has been reacting to, thinking about legislative issues that have restricted abortion care, thinking about legislation that affects our transgender population as well. And so we started fielding a lot of consults connected to these questions, trying to support providers and how do we address clients when we're thinking about evidence-based treatments, how do we address these factors that go beyond the protocol. And so I've started to do a lot of lectures and presentations in this area. And so I was also asked to be part of this paper to reflect on how Criterion A is, is related. And there are some people in the field, some scholars that have argued that Criterion A should be changed. Some have argued that it should be deleted or expanded, restricted. And so with my colleagues, we considered this question. And so I think there are some important areas of overlap when it comes to the experiences of racism and experiences of trauma, but some important differences too. So I think one difference is that many times in the psychology world, when we say trauma, we're referring to catastrophic trauma, criterion A, that references physical or sexual violence many of the times. Whereas racism can be a spectrum of different experiences, sometimes very obviously physical and violent, such as hate crimes or racially motivated assaults. But there are other times where racism has an impact that isn't physical, but it's emotional. So the term racial trauma is not in the DSM-5. It's not recognized officially, but it has definitely gained traction in society as well as this empirical literature. So I think there can be a divide between the empirical world of randomized clinical trials as well as multicultural psychology, and there are different approaches taken. So we take on some of these issues in the paper and ultimately concluded that at this stage, we don't have the data to recommend changing Criterion A, 
but do make some recommendations to the field to be thoughtful about these areas, collecting the data so that we do have important data to inform the next revision of DSM-5. I also think important aspects of research in this area will be to see whether it might be more appropriate to have an individual diagnosis for racial stress and trauma or discrimination, because one of the differences between trauma, that's criterion A, is that typically we're referring to things that have happened in the past that are over, whereas unfortunately, racism is ongoing, it's pervasive, and continues to exist. So many times where we're using some of the same strategies, going back to cognitive behavioral interventions, but the source of the, the, the stress is ongoing as opposed to historical. Yeah, yeah. It's, when I read that paper, you know, I love that you were capturing this idea of do we expand the criteria in a consideration or do we restrict it? And just looking at the whole landscape of these perspectives. Mm -hmm. And I also like that you mentioned, you know, just now, well, oftentimes when we talk about the criterion A stressor, it's a historical event. Mm -hmm. However, things like racial trauma, it's ongoing. Mm -hmm. It's also cumulative. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And it can result in a range of different presentations. So I think there has been a lot of discussion around how it can result in a PTSD-like presentation, but I think it's also equally important to address clinically if it's not a PTSD-like presentation, and instead it might manifest as different types of anxiety or different types of depression or be the driving factor behind substance use or other coping mechanisms that have become disruptive. So in thinking about these papers and the amazing work that you've done, I suspect it has not been without challenges in getting to where you are at now. Which leads me to ask, in your career as a person of color, what were some challenges that you faced and overcame that you would be willing to share? Sure. I think one of the first challenges I faced was isolation. So in many spaces, I'm often the only African-American person, let alone psychologist. And this can be in a professional setting, but sometimes personally as well. So sometimes I still get really excited when I see other psychologists of color because then I feel less alone. I think one of the things I've had to do to cope and survive has just been to connect with people. I am a naturally shy person, but I've really worked to overcome my social anxiety to be able to connect with others. One of the funniest stories I had was at the multicultural roundtable that happens at Teachers College in Columbia, and I was starting to see psychological celebrities, and so I was nervous to talk with them. But I had made some conference buddies, and one of them shoved me up to one of the greats in our field and basically strongly encouraged me to introduce myself. And that had ended up being very impactful. Um, he was coming to my university later in the fall. That so happened. And he was one of the main reasons why I connected with him and his wife as well and learned about the Association of Black Psychology, which I'd never learned about before. I've also found other professional organizations to be really helpful, particularly looking at special interest groups that focus on diversity, racial stress and trauma. I've been involved in groups such as the Association of Behavior and Cognitive Therapies, which has definitely over the years increased the amount of attention it's allotted to cultural issues as well as racial stress and trauma specifically. 
as well as the International Society for Traumatic Stress Studies. There's a diversity and cultural competence special interest group and a brand new racial stress and trauma special interest group as well. So by connecting professionally, it's helped me to overcome the isolation. And another challenge that I've had has been invalidation and sometimes hostility. There are times where people haven't understood why I'm doing the work I'm doing, saying things like, shouldn't we just focus on how we're more similar? Isn't this type of work divisive? Who wants to know if there are really racial ethnic differences because then what do we do about them? So you can imagine hearing these things as a trainee could be discouraging. So being able to be in professional spaces where people understood why I was doing what I was doing and also valued it has been really empowering and has also been helpful for practical reasons too, having some accountability and partners when it comes to presentations or scholarship as well. Wow. In spite of the discouragement that occurred, I mean, you were still able to seek community and support. May I ask, how did you respond when someone said, or said, hey, this work is divisive. Why should you, why are we studying differences instead of similarities? How did you respond to that? Sure, I mean, it's happened a couple different times in my career, but overall, my general message is to understand more about specific cultural factors because they can have differential impact. So our goal is not to separate people, but more to treat people as human and see their entire humanity. So this is something that we're opening the door to, asking clients if they want us to be thoughtful about these aspects of identity, but we're certainly not forcing it. So there might be clients that say, no, that's not really a big deal for me. And then we drop it and we move on. But for other clients, they might be very grateful and find it relieving to be able to talk about these identity and cultural factors. So essentially coming back to the rationale of why the study of culture and incorporation of it into treatment is important. Mm -hmm. There's also tenacity. Yes. To yes. be able I to withstand this discouragement and, and the challenges that you had to face. Mm -hmm. how, how did you, I mean, so you, uh, you sought community and support. Mm -hmm. What are some other ways that you've overcame those challenges as a person of color? Mm -hmm. I think self-awareness and self-care are also very powerful and important too. So just taking time to reflect, why am I saying yes to this opportunity? Is it because I think I'm expected to or I'm supposed to? Or are there things that I'm saying yes to for reasons that don't align with my values? Because that is another challenge that sometimes when you're a psychologist of color, you get pulled in a lot of different directions. My mother used to say, when you're good, you're good, and everyone wants a little piece of you. But then there's only so much of you to go around. So trying to really be thoughtful about my time and being intentional with the things that I choose to focus on. Any other messages you'd like to share with our listeners in relation to addressing challenges as a Black psychologist and finding community? I think just knowing the amount of resources that are available. When I joined the National Center for PTSD, I've been really impressed with all the things that are available for free. So for example, there's a monthly lecture series where we focus on issues of PTSD 
and also connects to different aspects related to identity. So there have been lectures that focus specifically on Blacks and African Americans. I've done a lecture that talked about racial stress and trauma. Other colleagues have talked about cultural in a more general way or focused on other groups such as Native American populations or Latinx populations as well. We also talk about other comorbidities or review the most recent clinical practice guidelines. So just knowing that those resources are available for free is nice. Then also we have a free consultation service for providers that are seeing veterans, whether they're inside of the VA or community providers outside of the VA. Oh, wow. So that I didn't realize that service was also available for non-VA psychologists. Yes. Any providers that are seeing veterans with PTSD. Oh, wow. Okay. We definitely mm-hmm. want to include that in the show mm-hmm. notes. Are there any others you'd like to add? I think it's also really helpful to use the resources that Monica Williams and, and her colleagues have provided. So for example, there are specific assessment measures such as the trauma symptoms of discrimination scale, the racial trauma scale, and they each have empirical articles as well. She's also introduced the racial healing protocol, which is the only therapy specific protocol that I know that addresses the topic of racism. It's a 12 session CBT model that utilizes many of the skills that have a lot of evidence base behind them, but also attends to empowerment strategies and specifically educating people about racism and strategies to overcome them. So Dr. Hall Clark, one of the things that we want to highlight too is the cultural strengths, because oftentimes when you talk about mental health and mental health treatment, it comes from a deficit model. Yes. And we know that there are a lot of strengths that Black and African-American community offer. Mm-hmm. How can we as therapists or faculty members tap into that strength? Tell me a little bit more about that. Sure. I think as part of the intake process, in addition to being mindful of cultural stressors, people can also ask what are our strengths from their culture. So for some people, that might be the resilience that African-American people have exhibited over time from overcoming slavery and segregation in the Jim Crow era to make many positive contributions in a number of fields, including psychology. And also thinking about different strengths of connectedness and supporting the community. For many people, faith and spirituality are a source of strength and coping and healing. Thinking about the power of the Black church and how it's been instrumental in a lot of people's healing and support. And also thinking about creativity. There are many wonderful examples of how African Americans have been creative in science, but also with the arts, music, that the numbers of examples are endless. How might that unfold in therapy as I'm working with the client, you know, because we Mm -hmm. talked about racial stress and trauma? Yes. Yes. So specifically thinking about how racism often leads to feelings of depression, anger, hopelessness, thinking about how can we address these feelings and use the strengths. So for some people that might be expressing themselves creatively through poetry or writing, or it could take the form of advocacy and thinking about how can they disrupt racism in their day-to-day lives, whether that is responding to comments that people make directly or that they witness. It might be understanding what's happening legislatively and looking for ways to express their opinion and voice in 
legislative arena. And also think self-care is a really important aspect of overcoming racial stress and trauma. Sometimes that's taking a break from the media and doom scrolling and taking time to allow ourselves to relax. Sometimes there, because of racism, there's the pressure to have to work twice as hard to get half as far. So for some people, the idea of relaxation feels that it's lazy or they don't have time to relax. So really being intentional and taking time to restore ourselves so that we can continue to thrive. The other thing that is coming up for me as we're having this conversation is we can't put the onus only on Black psychologists to address racial trauma or to address racial trauma in the Black population. Sure. So how do we become allies to really share the the journey and trying to pursue this healing as a whole? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So over the last several years in the different spaces that I'm connected to, I've seen increased attention to diversity topics and discussions of racism explicitly. So normalizing it in the context of team meetings or staff meetings, I think has been really helpful. In a couple of different groups that I'm involved in, we have biweekly or monthly discussion of pertinent cultural issues. Sometimes they are empirical articles. Sometimes they more focus on things that are happening in the popular media, but just continuing to have conversations about diversity, which has continued to be eye-opening for me as well as my colleagues. And one of those other things that has launched recently is a discussion of a racial healing handbook group. So there's a book by Annalise Singh. She's a woman of color, bisexual, and identifies as biracial. And this has been a helpful tool, I think, both with colleagues as well as clients to have some nice structure to explore this area, which can be challenging sometimes. The book was geared both for white people and people of color. So she writes to both audiences throughout the book. And there are different experiential exercises that encourage people to reflect on their own racial identities, times that they might experience racism in their personal lives, and think about ways to actively disrupt it. So I've already gone through this group with providers from around the country that we consult with as part of Strong Star Training Initiative. But we're also recently starting this among ourselves as the consultants. So it'll be more personal, helping ourselves to get to know each other and on a more deep level and be able to work together as colleagues to overcome these challenges. Sharing these challenges, bringing it to the table, labeling it, bringing it out in the open. Mm -hmm. And so with this idea of exploring our identity, one question I've incorporated in season two is, what does it mean for you to be a Black psychologist? Mm -hmm. Well, it makes me think about why I went into the field in the first place. And I decided to become a psychologist because I wanted to serve those that were underserved. And that included people that look like me, not exclusively, but intentionally. And many times people will seek me out because I am a Black woman and they feel more comfortable talking to someone that they can relate to. And of course, there's still differences just because we share some cultural characteristics doesn't mean that we're the same. We have different backgrounds, but many times it's a key factor in why people choose to, to see me. So I think continuing to be thoughtful about issues of cultural diversity with all clients that I'm seeing, including my, my Black clients, 
and just being mindful of representation. I think this also happens in conferences and training settings as well. Sometimes people will want to converse with me and want to know, you know, how did you get where, where you got? So I also try to take time to mentor, have conversations with people and tell them about many of the resources that we're discussing today, just helping people know that there's a lot to learn out there. Wow. So Dr. Hall Clark, you, I mean, just done so much as I guess your mother said, once you're <laughs> successful and great, everyone wants a piece of you. So how do we support you? Sure, sure. I mean, I think just continuing to, you know, take care of yourselves is a good way to, you know, address this issue of taking care of ourselves as psychologists of color. Yeah. Now we are in the month of Black History Month. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for you? For me, Black History Month is a time of reflection and appreciation, thinking about the sacrifices that my ancestors made thinking about the many challenges that African-American people have overcome and a time to be grateful for all the blessings that I have. I think it's also nice to see more attention given to the scholarship of black psychologists, thinking about people that have really paved the way for cultural work and a focus on African-American culture and ways that that research has contributed to real change when it comes to civil policies and also being thankful and grateful for contemporary African-American psychologists and contributors to the field and the resources that they're providing and ways that we can support them through citations and giving attention to their work. Well, Dr. Hall Clark, any final thoughts? That's it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Well, Dr. Hall Clark, thank you so much for such an enriching conversation. And thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. A huge thank you to our listeners. If you like what you've heard, please share and subscribe to our podcast, People of Color and Psychology. Other ways to support us include registering for continuing education courses or making a donation on the Multicultural Counseling Institute's website. We value your input and appreciate your continued support. You can send us an email, a message on LinkedIn, or send us a voice message on our website. Until next time, this is your host, Jack Sun.